0: section ten the book of ghosts this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. dot org recording by kirk Ziegler. the book of ghosts by sabine barring gould section ten a professional secret part one mr leverage was in a solicitor's office at swanton mr leveridge had been brought up well by a sensible father and an excellent mother his principles left nothing to be desired his father was now dead and his mother did not reside at swanton but near her own relatives in another part of england joseph leveridge was a mild inoffensive man with fair hair and a full head he was so shy that he did not move in society as he might have done had he been self-assertive but he was fairly happy not so happy as he might have been, for reasons to be shortly given. Swanton was a small market town that woke to life every Friday, which was market day, burst into boisterous levity at the Michaelmas fair, and then lapsed back into decorum. It was, except on Fridays, somnolent during the day and asleep at night. Swanton was not a manufacturing town. It possessed one iron foundry and a brewery, so that it afforded little employment for the laboring classes. Yet the laboring classes crowded into it, although cottage rents were high, because farmers could not afford, owning to the hard times, to employ many hands on the land, and because their wives and daughters desired the distractions and dissipations of town, and supposed that both were to be found in superfluity at Swanton. There was a large town hall with a magistrate's court, where the bench sat every month once. The church in the center of town was an imposing structure of stone very cold within the presentation was in the hands of the simonite trustees so that the vicar was of the theological school if that can be called a school where nothing is taught called evangelical the services ever long and dismal the vicar slowly and impressively declaimed the prayers preached lengthy sermons and condemned the congregation to sing out of the mitre hymnal the principal solicitor mr stork was the clerk of the petty sessions and registrar He did a limited amount of legal work for the landed gentry around, was trustee to some widows and orphans, and was consulted by tottering yeomen as to their financial difficulties, lent them some money to relieve their immediate embarrassments on the security of their land which ultimately passed into his possession. To this gentleman Mr. Leverage had been articled. He had been induced to adopt the legal profession, not from any true vocation but at the instigation of his mother who had urged him to follow the professional footsteps of his revered father but the occupation was not one that accorded with the tastes of the young man who notwithstanding his apparent mildness and softness was not deficient in brains he was a shrewd observer and was endowed with a redundant imagination from a child he had scribbled stories and with his pencil had illustrated them but this had brought upon him severe rebukes from his mother who looked with disfavor on works of imagination and his father had taken him across his knee of course before he was adult and had castigated him with the flat of the hairbrush for surreptitiously reading the arabian nights mr leverage's days passed evenly enough there was some business coming into the office on fridays and none at all on sundays on which day he wrote a long and affectionate letter to his widowed mother He would have been a happy man, happy in a mild, lotus-eating way, but for three things. In the first place he became conscious that he was not working in his proper vocation. He took no pleasure in engrossing deeds, indentures his soul abhorred. He knew himself to be capable of better things, and feared lest the higher faculties of his mind should become atrophied by lack of exercise. In the second place he was not satisfied that his superior was a man of strict integrity. He had no reason whatever for supposing that anything dishonest went on in the office, but he had discovered that his boss was a daring and venturesome speculator, and he feared lest temptation should induce him to speculate with the funds of those to whom he acted as trustee. And Joseph, with his high sense of rectitude, was apprehensive lest some day something might there be done which would cause a crash. Lastly, Joseph Leveridge had lost his heart. He was consumed by a hopeless passion for Miss Asphodel Vincent, a young lady with a small fortune of about four hundred pounds per annum, to whom Mr. Stork was guardian and trustee. This young lady was tall, slender, willowy, and had a sweet, Madonna-like face, and Joseph himself was constitutionally shy, and she was conscious of her personal and pecuniary attractions. She moved in the best society. She was taken up by the county people. No doubt she would be secured by the son of some squire and settle down as Lady Bountiful in some parish, or else some wily curate with a mustache would step in and carry her off. But her bashfulness and her indifference to men's society had so far protected her. She loved her garden, cultivated herbaceous plants, and was specially addicted to a rockery in which she acclimatized flowers from the Alps as mr stark was her guardian she often visited the office when joseph flew with height and color to offer her a chair till mr stark was disengaged but conversation between them had never passed beyond generalities mr leverage occasionally met her in his country walks but never advanced in intimacy beyond raising his hat and remarking on the weather probably it was the stimulus of this devouring and despairing passion which drove mr leverage to write a novel in which he could paint asphodel under another name in all her perfections she should move through his story diffusing an atmosphere of sweetness and saintliness but he could not bring himself to provide her with a lover and to conclude his romance with her union to a being of the male sex impressed as he had been in early youth by the admonitions of his mother and the applications of the hairbrush by his father that the imagination was a dangerous and elusive gift to be restrained not indulged he resolved that he would create no characters for his story but make direct studies from life consequently when the work was completed it presented the most close portraits of a certain number of residents in swanton and the town in which the scene was laid was very much like swanton though he called it busbury but to find a publisher was more difficult work than to write the novel. Mr. Leveridge sent his manuscript typewritten to several firms, and it was declined by one after another. At last, however, it fell into the hands of an unusually discerning reader who saw in it distinct tokens of ability. It was not one to appeal to the general public. It contained no blood-curdling episodes, no hair-breadth escapes, no risky situations it was simply a transcript of life in a little english country town though not high spice to suit the vulgar taste still the reader and publisher considered that there was a discerning public small intellect that relished a good honest work of jane austen kind and later resolved on risking the production accordingly he offered the author fifty pounds for the work buying all rights Joseph Leveridge was overwhelmed at the magnificence of the offer, and accepted it gratefully with alacrity. The next stage in the proceedings consisted in the revision of the proofs, and who has not experienced it can judge of the sensation of exquisite delight afforded by this to the young author. After the correction of his romance, if romance such a prosaic tale can be called, in print, with characteristic modesty, Leveridge insisted that his story should appear under an assumed name. What the name adopted was that it does not concern the reader of this narrative to know. Some time now elapsed before the book appeared, at the usual publishing time, in October. Eventually it came out, and Mr. Leverage received his six copies neatly and quietly bound in cloth. He cut and read one with avidity, and at once perceived that he had overlooked several typographical errors, and wrote to the publisher to beg that these might be corrected in the event of a second edition being called for. On the morning following the publication and dissemination of the book, Joseph Leverage lay in a bed a little longer than usual, smiling in happy self-gratification at the thought that he had become an author. On the table by his bed stood his extinguished candle, his watch, and the book. He had looked at it the last thing before he closed his eyes in sleep. It was, moreover, the first thing that his eyes rested on when they opened a fond mother could not have gazed on her new-born babe with greater pride and affection whilst he thus lay and said to himself i really must i positively must get up and dress he heard a stumping on the stairs and a few moments later his door burst open and in came major Jelly jones a retired officer resident in swanton who had never before done him the honor of a call and now he actually penetrated into joseph's bedroom the major was hot in the face he panted for breath his cheeks quivered the major was a man who judging by what could be perceived of his intellectual gifts could not have been a great acquisition to the army he was a man who never could have been trusted to act a brilliant part he was a creature of routine a martinet and since his retirement to swanton had been a passionate golf-player and nothing else what do you mean sir what do you mean sputtered he by putting me into your book. My book, echoed Joseph, affecting surprise. What book do you refer to? Oh, it's all very well you're assuming that air of injured innocence. You're trying to evade my question. Your sheepish expression does not deceive me. Why, there is the book in question by your bedside. I have, I admit, been reading that novel which has recently appeared. You wrote it. Everyone in Swanton knows it. I don't object to you writing a book. Any fool can do that, especially a novel. What I do object to is you putting me into it.' "'If I remember rightly,' said Joseph, quaking under the bedclothes, and then wiping his upper lip, on which dew was forming, "'if I remember aright, there is in it a major who plays golf and does nothing else, but his name is Piper. What do I care about a name? It is I. I. You have put me in.' really major jones you have no justification in thus accusing me the book does not bear my name on the back and title page neither does the golfing retired military officer bear my name but that does not matter it is i myself i am in your book i would horsewhip you had i any energy left in me but it is all gone gone with my personality into your book nothing is left to me nothing but a body and a light tweed suit I—I have been taken out of myself and transferred to that—he used a naughty word—that book. How can I golf any more? Walk the links any more with any heart? How can I putt a ball and follow it up with any feeling of interest? I am but a carcass. My soul, my character, my individuality have been burgled. You have broken into my inside and have despoiled me of my personality. And he began to cry. Possibly suggested, Mister Leverage. The author might—the author can do nothing. I have been robbed. My fine ethereal self has been purloined. I, Jelly Jones, am only an outside husk. You have despoiled me of my richest jewel, myself. I really can do nothing, Major. I know you can do nothing. That's the pity of it. You have sucked up all my spiritual being with his concomitants out of me, and I cannot put it back again. You have used me up then wringing his hands the major left the room and stumped slowly downstairs and quitted the house joseph leverage rose from his bed and dressed in great perturbation of mind here was a condition of affairs on which he had not reckoned he was so distracted in mind that he forgot to brush his teeth when he reached his little sitting-room he found that the table was laid for breakfast and that his landlady had just brought up the usual rashers of bacon and two boiled eggs she was sobbing "'What is the matter, Mrs. Baker?' asked Joseph. "'Has Lysenia—that was the name of the servant—broken any more dishes?' "'Everything has happened,' replied the woman. "'You have taken away my character.' "'I—I I never did such a thing.' "'Oh, yes, sir, you have. "'All the time you've been writing. i felt it going out of me like perspiration, and now it's all in your book.' "'My book?' "'Yes, sir, under the name of Mrs. Brooks.' "'But, law, sir.' What is there in the name? You might have taken the name of Baker and used it as you likes. There be plenty of Bakers in England and the colonies. But it's my character, sir, you have taken away and shoved into your book. Then the woman wiped her eyes with her apron. But really, Mrs. Baker, if there had been a landlady in this novel, of which you complain, there is, and it's me. But this is a mere work of fiction. It is not a work of fiction. It is a work of fact, and that a cruel fact. It has a poor lorn widow like me to go boast of her character. I'm sure I've done well by you, and never boiled your eggs hard, and to use me like this. Good gracious, dear Mrs. Baker, don't dear me, sir, if you had loved me, if you had been decently grateful for all I have done for you, and mended your socks, too. You'd not have stolen my character from me, and put it into your book. Ah, sir, you have dealt by me what I call regular shameful, and not like a gentleman. You have used me up joseph was silent cowed he turned the thrashers about on the dish with his fork in an abstracted manner all desire to eat was gone from him and then the landlady went on and it's not me only who has to complain there are three gentlemen outside sitting on the doorstep waiting for you and they say that there they will remain till you go out of your office and they intend to have it out with you joseph started from the chair he had taken and went to the window and threw up the sash Leaning out, he saw three hats below. It was as Mrs. Baker had intimidated. Three gentlemen were seated on the doorstep. One was the vicar, another his boss, Mr. Stork, and the third was Mr. Wartherspoon. There could be no mistake about the vicar. He wore a chimney-pot hat of silk that had begun to curl at the brim, anticipatory of being adapted as that of an archdeacon. Moreover, he wore extensive, well-cultivated gray whiskers on each cheek. If we were inclined to adopt the modern, careless usage, we might say that he grew whiskers on either cheek. But in strict accuracy, that would mean that the whiskers grew indifferently or alternatively, intermittently, on one cheek or the other. This, however, was not the case. Consequently, we say, on each cheek. These whiskers now waved and fluttered in the light air passing up and down the street. The second was Mr. Stork. He wore a stiff felt hat, his fiery hair showed beneath it. Behind and in front. When he lifted his head, the end of his pointed nose showed distinctly to Joseph Leveridge, who looked down on it from above. The third, Mr. Wotherspoon, had a crushed brown cap on. He sat with his hands between his knees, dejected, and looking on the ground. Mr. Wotherspoon lived in Swanton with his mother and three sisters. The mother was the widow of an officer not well off. He was an agreeable man, an excellent player at lawn tennis, croquet, golf, rackets, billiards, and cards. His age was thirty, and he had as yet no occupation. His mother gently, his sisters sharply, urged him to do something so as to earn his livelihood. With his mother's death her pension would cease, and he could not then depend on his sisters. He always answered that something would turn up. Occasionally he ran to town to look for employment, but invariably returned without having secured any, and with his pockets empty. He was so cheerful, so good-natured, was such good company, that everyone liked him. But also everyone was provoked at his sponging on his mother and sisters. "'Really, Mr. Leverage, it is true that I have drawn them pretty accurately in my novel, and here they are, ready to take me to account for so doing. I will leave the house by the back door.' Without his breakfast, Joseph fled, and having escaped from those who had hoped to intercept him, he made his way to the river. Here were pleasant grounds, with walks laid out and benches provided. The place was not likely to be frequented at that time of the morning, and Mr. Leverage had a half an hour to spare before he was due at the office. There, later, he was likely to meet his boss, but it was better to face him alone than him accompanied by two others who had a similar grievance against him he seated himself on a bench and thought he did not smoke he had promised his mamma not to do so and he was a dutiful son and regarded his undertaking what should he do he was becoming involved in serious embarrassments would it be possible to induce the publisher to withdraw the book from circulation and to receive back the fifty pounds that was hardly possible he had signed away all his rights in the novel, and the publisher had been to a considerable expense for paper, printing, binding, and advertising. He was roused from his troubled thoughts by seeing Miss Asphodel Vincent coming along the walk towards him. Her step had lost its wonted spring, her carriage its unusual buoyancy. In a minute or two she would reach him. Would she deign to speak? He felt no compunction towards her. He had made her his heroine in the tale by not a word had he cast a shadow over her character or her abilities indeed he had pictured her as the highest ideal of an english girl she might be flattered she could not be offended and yet there was no flattery in his pencil he had sketched her in as she was as she approached she noticed the young author she did not hasten her step she displayed a strange listlessness in her movements and a lack of vivacity in her eye When she stood over against him, Joseph Leverage rose and removed his hat. "'An early promade, Miss Vincent,' he said. "'Oh,' she said, "'I am glad to meet you here, where we cannot be overheard. I have something about which I must speak to you, to complain of a great injury done to me.' "'You do me high honor,' exclaimed Joseph. "'If I can do anything to alleviate your distress and to redress the wrong, command me.' "'You can do nothing. It is impossible to undo what has already been done.' You put me into your book." "'Miss Vincent,' protested Leverage, with some vehemence, "'if I have, what then?' "'I have not in the least overcharged the colors, and by a line caricatured you.' It was in vain for him to further pretend not to be the author, and to have merely read the book. That may be, or it may not, but you have taken strange liberties with me in transferring me to your pages. And you really recognized yourself?" it is myself my very self who is there and yet here you are before my humble self that is only my outer shell all my individuality all that goes to make up the ego i myself has been taken from me and put into your book surely that cannot be but it is so i feel precisely as i suppose my doll when i was a child when it became unstitched and all the bran ran out it hung like a limp rag but it is not brand you have deprived me of it is my personality in my novel is your portraiture indeed but you yourself are here said Leveridge. it is my very self my noblest and best part my moral and intellectual self which has been carried off and put into your book this is quite impossible miss vincent a moment's thought said she will convince you that it is as i say If I pick an alpine flower and transfer it to my blotting-book, it remains in the herbarium. It is no longer on the Alp where it bloomed." "'But,' urged Joseph—' "'No,' she interrupted, "'you cannot undeceive me. No one can be in two places at the same time. If I am in your book, I cannot be here, except so far as goes my animal nature and fame. You have subjected me, Mr. Leveridge, to the greatest humiliation.' I am, by you, reduced to the level of a score of girls that I know, with no pursuits, no fixed principles, no opinions of their own, no ideas. They are swayed by every fashion. They are molded by their surroundings. They are destitute of what some would call moral fiber, and I would term character. I had all this, but you have deprived me of it, by putting it into your book. I shall henceforth be the sport of every breath, be influenced by every folly, be without self-confidence and decision, the prey to any adventurer. Oh, for heaven's sake, do not say that. I cannot say anything other. If I had a sovereign in my purse, and a pickpocket stole it, I should no longer have the purse and sovereign, only the pocket. And I am a mere pocket now, without the coin of my personality that you have filched from me. Mr. Leverage, it was a cruel wrong you did me when you used me up. Then, sighing, Miss Asphodel went languidly on her way. Joseph was stunned. He buried his face in his hands. End of section 10. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah. Voiceover Dash Solutions dot com.